The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put on your Steve Jobs Ain't Dead Yet t-shirt and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 376 with guest Charles Petzl and special guest co-host Mark Dunn, recorded live Tuesday, September 9th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's.net training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV stuff. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who can't say the word Chrome without thinking of that old trailer hitch joke, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, Brandon. Brandon Wen filling in for Lawrence, who's on vacation. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Richard is also on vacation. Of course, he's climbing Mount Everest. He's not here. Uh, Mark Dunn will be here in a moment for the interview with Charles Petzold. But first, let me tell you about the .NET Rocks Barcelona contest. Uh, I got an email today from somebody complaining about the website, uh, you know, that it's sort of uh, not using the membership stuff and, you know, why and all of that. And touche, to your point, I'm uh, working on a new membership version of that site right now. So, you know, it just got me thinking, yeah, you're right. Why We should practice what we preach here at .NET Rocks. So the contest uh, is going on for the next six and a half weeks. And every week you can go to .netrocks.com slash Barcelona and answer a simple question about a recent show. This week's question is, what was Brian Noyes' status at Microsoft during de- the development of Prism? A, vendor, B, consultant, or C, blue badge? So uh, if you listen to the show with Glenn Block and Brian Noyes, you'll probably know the answer to that. The winner every week will be picked from all of the correct answers. And every week, we're going to give away a brain bag by Tom Bin. TomBin.com. That's T-O-M-B-I-H-N.com. Check out the brain bag. It is the best backpack and the best carrying device for laptops known to man. 
We already gave one out, giving away another one on Tuesday. And the weekly winners will all go into a pool to win the grand prize, which is an all-expense-paid trip, asterisk, to TechEd Developer, uh, November 10th through 14th, 2008, in Barcelona, Spain. So the asterisk means we're going to pay your airfare, we're going to pay your hotel, and we're going to uh, pay your admission to the conference. Our good friends at Infusion are still looking for some good people to uh, work in New York City and in Dubai, working on uh, SharePoint and WPF and Silverlight and all sorts of great new technologies. Also, Microsoft Surface, they got a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, If you qualify for the New York tour, they will put you up in an apartment rent-free for a year in New York City. So if you're young and ambitious and want to move to Manhattan for a year, um, it couldn't be easier. Just uh, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I will introduce you to the right people. And uh, good luck. Well, uh, I'd like to bring back into the fold my co-host, Mark Dunn, my original co-host. Hi, Mark. Hey, Carl. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. And uh, it's always good to talk to you as well. Well, I knew this was going to be a conversation that you would really enjoy because you are a math geek. And uh, uh, unlike me, I'm not so much of a math geek as I am a sort of a music guy on the other half of the brain. But uh, our guest today is Charles Petzold. He is uh, best known for writing books about Windows programming for the past 20 years. The first one was Programming Windows, and the most recent is 3D Programming for Windows. He also occasionally writes more unusual books. In 1999, Microsoft Press published Petzold's book Code, The Hidden Language of Computer Hardware and Software, a unique exploration of digital technologies beginning with Morse code and the telegraph. Just Out is a sequel of sorts to Code, published by Wiley, and entitled The Annotated Turing, a guided tour through Alan Turing's historic paper on computability and the Turing machine. Welcome, Charles. Welcome back, I should say. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was was four years ago that I was first on .NET Rocks. Wow. I just looked that up. uh, Program number 77. Wow. Long time ago. I think, think, uh, Mark, that was a Rory show, wasn't it? Oh yeah, probably. I, I I would have remembered talking to Charles. Yeah, I'm actually a big Charles fan, so I usually you know come up with some you know excited analogy right. uh, when I'm talking on .NET Rocks. But I've got to say I'm just honored uh, to be able to talk to Charles today. Yeah, Charles, you taught most of us how to program Windows. You even taught me how to program the Windows API when I was using Visual Basic, and I wasn't wow. a C programmer. Mm-hmm. But uh, all about bitmaps and GDI and and the palette. The, the, oh, that's great. The abomination, which was the 256 <laughs> color palette. No, no, no. You have to realize your palette before it will take effect. Yeah, most of us, if we were program, programming Windows early, uh, probably bought Charles's book prior to Dan Appleman's uh, API book. At this point, I haven't done API programming for a, a good ten years. I think. Does that sound about right? No, I must have done. I must no, be doing. That's, that's about right. Well, I, I, the fifth edition of Programming Windows um, was on Win, Windows ninety ninety eight. So I must have been doing some about ten years ago. 
But uh, yeah. after after I started playing around with C Sharp and .NET, there was really no looking back. Yep. Now touring, uh, and right. Mark, Mark, this is why I asked you to to come and and be part of this conversation because you are a, a huge touring fan. We were talking about this before um, I even got Charles's book in the mail. He's uh, re- really considered the the father of modern computer science, isn't he? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and. Pretty much only from, I, I mean, if, if you look at his life, I mean, it was a very interesting life. Um, and uh, he, he broke codes during World War II, and he was div- involved in um, several seminal computer projects in England in, in the late 40s and early 50s. But he's really uh, best known for writing two papers. Uh, and the, the, the second of these two papers is... Um, called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, and it was published in 1950 in the uh, English uh, Journal of Philosophy, Mind, and it was the paper that invented what is now called the the Turing Test for Artificial Intelligence. And basically, if a computer is can convince you that it's a person, then we should probably grant that it's intelligent. What do you think about that? I mean, it's been a long time since he wrote that paper. It's been, and it's still, it's still a provocative, uh, it's still a provocative paper. It's still a very interesting paper to read because a lot of people have immediate objections to this idea, and he answers many of these objections in this paper. But that's, this paper is is widely available. You can pretty much find it anywhere on the web. Um, but it's it's. Um, we we object to this concept because we know internally we have consciousness we have this voice running through our heads we have something that does that we think does more than just process algorithms like right. a computer program so that that's why we object to this um it, it's almost like if we can sufficiently be fooled we put the stamp of okay on it right yeah yeah but it's really we really don't know much of what's going on inside other people's heads. Right. You know, I, I really don't know that if you have consciousness or not. Right. Um, I assume you do, because I, I assume that I'm like most human beings. But it's, it's, a, it's a difficult philosophical question. Well, I th- wasn't uh, um, Joseph Weizenbaum's program, Eliza, sort of an answer to that? That he he wanted to show people that something could appear intelligent. That's just basically it's really lo- not. Yeah. It's not. It's the looking yeah. up lists of keywords and yeah. The the interesting thing is though that that I mean people have developed programs that seem to be intelligent when they're restricted to a fairly confined range of knowledge. There's no there's no program that really that can pass the Turing test in a very general way yet. Um, and uh, uh, Turing predicted that such a program would come about by by the turn of the century, and it's not. Um, so there's something there's something missing. Um, we don't understand perhaps the mind well enough to the human mind to duplicate it in in software, um, or or something else. I don't know. Um, well, what, what about creativity? Uh, you know, can we make a program that can create something new. I th- I think part of the key is that the the more the, the the more recent research into the workings of the mind um, seem to indicate that it's a uh, it's not like a a, a 
a, a single processor computer. There's no central part of the brain that, that controls everything else. The brain is, is more loosely coupled pieces, various pieces that fit together. And this, this thing that we call consciousness seems to be a, a kind of uh, communication between the pieces of the brain. Um, so uh, where creativity comes from, um, I don't know. It could be creativity is, is a, the brain trying out various things and, and maybe one of them clicks, <laughs> one of them works. I like to think of creativity sort of as uh, random chaos that's passed through various filters in mm. various subconscious and conscious levels until one arrives at uh, uh, something that, that clicks or, or seems familiar that, doesn't, uh, that can't be explained consciously, but it's sort of like right there on the edge of conscious and subconscious mind. That's, so that's that, a good analogy. But and but it, if you think about randomness, uh, you know we can we can simulate uh, simulate randomness with computers certainly. Mm -hmm. But it's what what gets randomized. I mean, in the brain, you're randomizing uh, you know visual images, sounds, uh, memories, those things. Yeah. Well, you're 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 a composer, so. Um, you, you probably know that, that there's a lot of tunes going through your head that, and many of them are terrible, you know, that, and it's more of a process of rejecting the bad ones rather right. than, than coming up with a, uh, just from scratch one, uh, tune that's really good. You know, some of my favorite songwriters specifically don't listen to the radio and don't listen to popular <laughs> music because they want to remain pure. They want, they want their sounds that they come up with to be as pure as possible. Not not necessarily being reflections of things that they've heard. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of impossible to 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 remain so pure. I mean, from the very first nursery rhymes you heard when you were a kid, those are right. stuck in there and they're part of your creative process. But I think you're right, though. That, I mean, a lot of a lot of creativity in that regard comes down to filtering out stuff that's that's familiar and trying to find that transcendent thing. Right, yeah, you need to uh, sort of build on the influence of others, I believe. Well, it's inevitable. And and that's uh the tell me about the Turing test itself was how how detailed was were his uh guidelines? Well, uh he his original Turing test was actually kind of odd because he he made it um more like a a uh, a, uh, pretending to be the opposite gender that you were, uh, pretend, a, a, a man pretending to be a woman or a woman pretending to be a man. Um, and and I, I think ultimately that was, that part of the Turing test was a little, um, was, it was kind of discarded um, because a little distracting. Uh, he wasn't real specific um but he defined a Turing machine as having some characteristics. Yeah. Well, let's uh, the 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 other the other famous paper of Turing's. Let's let's jump to that. Was okay. written fourteen years earlier um, when he was uh, uh, still at Cambridge, and um, this is the paper with the very scary title uh, on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidungsproblem, which is the German word for decision problem. 
Uh, and this is the paper that invented the Turing machine, uh, which is a very simple model of, at the time, uh, we think of it as a model for, for digital computing. What he thought of it as a model for uh, a human being carrying out an algorithm. So he sort of, he, he obviously saw the difference, the, the similarities between the brain or the apparent workings of the brain and the computer. He seems to have, yes. He didn't, he didn't really write that much about it. It was really other people uh, who, who picked up on, on some of these ideas, um, particularly in uh, around 1947, I guess, uh, neuro, a neurophysicist, uh, uh, Warren McCullough, and his associate, uh, Walter Pitts, came up with this model of the neuron uh, that basically indicated that neurons working together was an elaborate Turing machine. Uh, so it was, it was really other people rather than Turing himself who, who started exploring these other connections. Well, how, how does Alonzo Church play into, uh, into this? Uh, you know, we, we have heard of Lambda Calculus, maybe. Uh, how would you sort of compare what Turing did with what Church did? Well, they were both working on the same problem. Um, and this was a, a mathematical problem called the Entscheidungs problem. And it was a problem that was formulated by, by the German mathematician David Hilbert in a book that was a little tiny book on mathematical logic that was published in Germany in, in 1928. And this is the same book that Kurt Gödel read and which uh, posed the, the, the problem um, the, the, the problem that he worked on. Uh, but both Alonzo Church and uh, Alan Turing attacked the same problem, the Entscheidungs problem. And what this is, is take an arbitrary statement in first-order predicate logic. And first-order predicate logic is, is logic that has the familiar and and or constructors. It also includes the upside-down A and the backwards E for all and for each. And it also includes predicates, such as uh, a predicate would be is prime. Um, that would return true if the argument is prime and false other words, otherwise. So take an arbitrary statement in first-order logic. Is there an algorithm that will tell you whether this statement is true or not? That was the Entscheidungs problem. Any arbitrary statement. Yeah. It's quite a puzzle, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it seems a little open-ended, don't you think? I mean, if well, it's about no. numbers, it should be easy for the computer to do. But if it's about... Uh, well, the thing is that, that there were various subsets of first-order logic that had decision procedures. Um, and one of these is if you restrict your predicates to one argument, there is a decision procedure that will tell you whether an arbitrary statement is, is true or not. Um, so there was a feeling that there might be an al a, a algorithm that would apply to any arbitrary statement. And uh, both Alonzo Church and Alan Turing, Alonzo Church was working out of uh, Princeton, um, they both attacked this problem, and they, they both came it. up. They disproved it. Yeah. There is no such thing. And that was, that was really the point of Turing's original paper. Um, Alonzo Church used a, a completely different approach, um, 
the good the neat thing about Turing's approach is that it's all confined to this one paper. This one thirty-six page paper uh, has has the com- the, uh, the the construction of the Turing machine and how this relates to the Einstein's problem, etc. Alonzo Church um, needed to invent the lambda calculus first, and the, the lambda calculus is a way of notating uh, functions and integers so that all arithmetic, integer arithmetic anyway, and logic becomes pure symbol manipulation. And there is a article, uh, there is a chapter on the lambda calculus towards the end of, of the annotated Turing because uh, uh, Alonzo Church's paper was published first. And so he proved the Entscheidung's problem had no solution. There is no arbit, there is no algorithm to arbit, tell you whether an arbitrary statement in first order logic is true or not. Uh, which meant that Turing's paper, which had been finished and was, had actually been almost submitted to the, um, the, the London Mathematical Society, Turing's paper would normally not have been publishable because he was beaten to the proof. But it was felt that Turing's approach which used this, this, this machine thing called the Turing machine later, um, was unique and, and different enough to justify the publication of his paper as well. Uh, Turing then later, within a, uh, a, a couple years, went to Princeton to study under Alonzo Church and actually got his, his, Alonzo Church was Turing's uh, PhD advisor. When did, uh, Turing get into cryptography? Was it around the war time? It was yes. Um, he had been interested in it in the in the late 1930s, and he was actually um, uh, came up with this idea of multiplying uh, uh, character uh, numbers representing characters by by prime numbers, and and so you have non factorable numbers. Um, I'm not sure if he actually invented that technique or not, but he was he was at one point working on a That's machine that brilliant. would do this. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's very simple, a simple, elegant way to encrypt. Yeah. And then he was recruited from, by the British government, um, which had bought this estate called Bletchley Park, uh, which is uh, located between, it's, it's like the, the intellectual epicenter of, of England. It's There's, the code-breaking mecca, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was, it, was between, it was between Cambridge and Oxford. The, the train line between Cambridge and Oxford, halfway in between, was Bletchley Park. And then you could also catch a train south to London. So it was, it was a very convenient spot. And they, they eventually had something like 10,000 people working at Bletchley Park trying to break codes. Uh, all different kinds of codes that the that the Germans were using, and it was it was everything ranging from the interception of the radio signals to transcribing them to and 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 all that. And Turing was in charge of uh, put in charge of this this figuring out this device called the Enigma. The Enigma machine. Yeah, which was a, a devilishly complex uh, German coding machine. So Enigma was a German machine. Yeah, it was invented in Germany, yes. So how was that? And this was used by the Germans to encrypt messages, and uh, and was he pivotal in cracking the cipher for, for the Enigma machine? Yes, to the extent that it, it never got to a point where you could take a, uh, a, a, a code and run it through an algorithm and come up with, with the, the text. I mean, it was... 
he developed, um, and there were other people working on it as well. Be- before the war, there's, there were uh, some Polish mathematicians who had done a great deal of work in, in figuring out how the enigma worked and how best to decrypt the messages. But uh, he developed uh, uh, some techniques for doing this, including a uh, what was called the Turing bomb, which was a simulation of a bunch of Enigma machines working in parallel. So once you could kind of narrow down a range of possibilities of how the, a particular Enigma machine was set up to encode a message, you could simulate a bunch of them working in parallel and, and uh, see if one of them came up with, with uh, actual German text, which would, of course, then have to be translated into English to figure out what they were actually saying. What was, what was his role in the HUD-8? That, he was he was in charge of Hut Eight. Hut Eight was the, uh, the they built these little huts around Bletchley Park because the actual mansion wasn't big enough for everybody. And and Hut Eight was um, devoted to this to the Enigma, which is was being used by the German Navy. So it was um, it was important to protect convoys, particularly convoys going between England and the U.S. Sort of like a, a cube farm. Yeah. <laughs> right. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik, and uh, let you know that this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik. You know, summer is in full swing now, and you're probably lying on the beach, but our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD Controls for WPF and RAD Controls for Silverlight? That's right. If you started building next-generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, They have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now, that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Uh, well, didn't Turing uh, come up with, uh, I guess, a technique of eliminating very quickly uh, ciphers that wouldn't work uh, when it came to decrypting things uh, from the Enigma? Yeah, there's... there's uh some of the techniques, I mean, a lot of this, the information about this stuff was classified for for decades. Um, and uh, uh, during Turing's lifetime, people really didn't know what he had done during the war, except the people who had been at Bletchley Park with him. Um, so there's, but there's a lot of recent literature about all this stuff and all the, the techniques that they use to, to, uh, to work on the Enigma machine. Um, and some of it just involved like like uh uh having um paper with holes punched in it and you try to to match this up against uh, the the encrypted uh letters and try to find patterns and things like that a lot of it's very complex didn't he move to the united states after a while and work on some things at bell labs like uh, was, the secure speech project yeah like he that. didn't he didn't uh 
he didn't actually live in the U.S. at any point, but he did, during the war, he was kind of a liaison between um, Bletchley Park and some uh, stuff that was going on in, in the U.S. And part of this involved a, a visit to Bell Labs, which was, at that time was located in New York City. Hmm. Um, it's now uh, uh, in Jersey. There is no Bell Labs anymore, is there? Right. What has it yes. been renamed something? Well, the AT and T um, swallowed it up. I think a Lucent, yeah. Lucent Technologies, right? That's Bell what Labs. it's called. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he met people like like uh, Claude Shannon, who who developed communications theory, and uh, Mike Fist, who who uh, had a very famous sampling theorem that's uh, used in in digital sampling. Wow. And there was yeah there was. Uh, some work being done in encrypting uh, speech of uh, like you, you would digitize a speech and then you uh, would add a certain uh, number to everything and ignore carries and encrypt it like that. Um, but it, obviously, it took a long time for a lot of some of that stuff to come to fruition. You know? <laughs> he really had that spark of creativity that Einstein talked about, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny, the more you read about Turing, and there's an ex, I, I didn't try to do a biography of Turing in this book, um, because there's already an excellent biography written by Andrew Hodges. And, uh, but the more you, you, you read about Turing, the more you recognize him as, he's, he's one of us. He's, he's a, uh, he's a, uh, nerd. Yeah. And uh, it was. <laughs> uh, you just wanted some... us to feel the kinship. <laughs> yeah, you really, you really do. It's it's just amazing. He uh, there's there's some funny stories about him. There's, um, for example, during the war when he was wor- working at Bletchley Park, he would bicycle from his his apartment to Bletchley Park in the morning, and. His, he had this old bicycle, and he couldn't get it repaired, but the chain would fall off periodically as he'd be bicycling, and he'd have to stop and put the chain back on. And he, he figured out that the chain would fall off after a certain number of pedals so that he would count, be counting the time he, times he'd pedal the bike and reach N number N minus one, and then stop the bike and adjust the chain before it would actually fall off. And <laughs> that was how he solved the the, the falling off chain problem. Um, wow! <laughs> I guess he didn't think to tighten the chain. No, I was going to say, why don't you just tighten it up? No. I don't know. I don't know. Um, um I I was reading a little bit about him, and uh, I discovered that he was interested in Fibonacci numbers, and this is something that Mark is interested in as well—the Fibonacci sequence, which I right. probably the world first heard about reading that Dan Brown book, um, <laughs> the Da Vinci yeah. Code. Yeah, the Da Vinci, da Vinci Code. code. Did, right. did you read that book? The da Vinci oh, I read code? that book. What did you yeah. think? I mean, was that like watching Star Trek for the real scientists? <laughs> <laughs> decouple was, the Heisenberg compensators. <laughs> it was certainly a, it was certainly a quick read. It was it was amusing. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's um, I I find I find that I can't uh, that novels have to have compelling characters for me. Yeah. and uh, these characters were a little little flat. It's kind of pulpy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in, in real life, these guys are probably more interesting than what uh, we see in fiction. 
Probably. Yeah. I mean, if you if you uh, could, you, would he be would Turing be on your list of people you'd like to have dinner with? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Who else is on yeah. that list? Although, although, from what I gather, he was he was uh, very shy. Who else would be on that list having dinner with? Gosh, I've never thought of this question before. That's a problem with doing interviews rather than writing. <laughs> see, if, if I'm writing something, I can sit here thinking about it for an hour and nobody knows, and then I can write it down. But well, yeah. let's let's move on to his sort of <laughs> personal problems and 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 uh, some of the issues that he had around the end of his life. Yeah. He was a complicated guy. Yeah, he was, uh, and and he, um, like I said, he was he was nerdy. There's there's been uh, some people suggesting he, he was marginally autistic, um, but one one thing that he was pretty much incapable of lying, huh. um, and uh, so he had a, a difficult time deceiving people. Um, he probably knew he was gay from a uh, from his teenage years, and he didn't keep it. He didn't try to keep it a secret. Um, in in the 1930s, when he was going to Cambridge, uh, it wasn't like it wasn't like there were um, people who who hmm, there there were uh, there was a homosexual subculture in England at the time um, that was not well known to the general public, and it, it wasn't. That, that people could be openly gay, but that there was a certain amount of tolerance, um, yeah. for it. And when he was at Bletchley Park, um, Bletchley Park was probably the biggest assemblage of eccentrics ever in England. Mm. Um, not only the mathematicians, but, uh, the, the government hired classic scholars as well because uh, under the assumption that these were the people most skilled at, at decoding strange languages. So you right. had a, mathematicians and classic scholars at, at Bletchley Park. Um, and, uh, but after the war, um, particularly in the 1950s, uh, things got very, very bad for gay people in the U.S. and also in England. Um, and part of this was a result of the, uh, the communist witch hunts um, which are more f- famous than the the actual uh, witch hunts against gay people, but uh, pretty much everybody knows about the early 1950s and Senator right. Joseph McCarthy and uh, railing against communists in the State Department and how this was why the U.S. lost China, why China went communist. Yeah, um, and so there were. But there actually weren't a lot of communists in the in the State Department, and <laughs> they were pretty easy to find. Um, but there were a lot of of gay people working in Washington D.C., and so there was this this witch hunt to fire fire gay people working in the government, hmm. um, and it was uh, it's it's well documented in a uh, a book that I reference in the. Um, one of the chapters of this. Um, so he thought he was ill, right? I mean, he somebody had convinced him, or he had convinced himself yeah. that homosexual was uh, uh, homosexuality was a was a disease that needed to be treated. 
Well, well actually, in, in England, uh, they they were treating him as uh, I guess he he chose the path yeah. to avoid prison to take okay. the treatment. Yeah. Well, anyway, anyway, he had this this uh, touring in 1951-52. Touring had a uh, uh, met another man and who uh, visited touring at his apartment, and they had uh, uh, they had sex. And um, then Turing's apartment was robbed, and um, Turing went to the police, and uh, the the guy who robbed the apartment was a friend of this, this the guy that Turing was seeing, and Turing admitted the nature of his relationship to the police, and they arrested him. Um, and they arrested him under a law that uh, prohibited what was termed gross indecency, between men. And That's this, a nice this, general law for you. <laughs> <laughs> this this term was not precisely defined in the law, but it was it was known what it meant. Um, there's another there's another British legal term called uh, uh, buggery. Now, people know what buggery is, right? Um, gross indecency. <laughs> gross indecency was not buggery. So to be to me, how do you, how explicit do you want me to get? <laughs> no, we get it. We get it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we, we sort of like, what you mean? Well, there is a like a sodomy law in some states even today. Even now, yeah, yeah. Right. Which is yeah, a lot of a lo- crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. It, in the early fifties, there was a uh, laws pretty much in in throughout um, the U.S. and uh, besides England uh, prohibiting uh, sexual contact between men. And so uh, this, this law prescribed up to two years hard labor. But by the early 50s, they were, had different approaches. Um, you could opt for a hormone treatment. And uh, they had been doing experimentations with treating homosexuals with hormones from the 30s. And they first said, they first said, Oh, uh, let's see. They, they, you know, everybody knows homosexuals are effeminate, hence they they need testosterone. They need male more male hormone to be normal. So they started shooting up uh, gay men with testosterone, which did not work. It, <laughs> it did not have the desired effect. Um, and uh, then they said, "Oh, maybe we should go in the opposite direction." Now you so have a they, bunch of gay people walking around <laughs> who are pissed off and want to kick your ass. Yeah, and will. And so they started uh, estrogen treatments, and the estrogen treatments uh, rendered the men impotent, uh, made their breasts grow, and they said, hey, this is working. They, they can no longer have sex with the estrogen treatments. So uh, Turing opted for that, um, and it was, it was not a pleasant thing, I mean, if, if you can imagine. Um, but at about, and about two years later, he committed suicide. It's not really known to what extent um, the treatment, the legal, his legal treatment was related to the suicide. The suicide is rather mysterious, um, but it's uh, it's part of the the sad later years of Turing's life. Yeah, he actually ate an apple that was uh, laced with cyanide, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, getting back to some of his um, the the test and some early computers that tried to pass the test, just about uh, well, there was a lot of them, weren't there? 
including one of the what, what was one of those big computers, the Colossus that we talked about, Mark. With uh, yeah, that that was one of the early, very early computers in England. Yeah, the Colossus. There's a, there's a recent book about the Colossus that's um, edited by Jack Copeland. Um, that c- contains a, a bunch of articles about the Colossus and the history of it. The Colossus was uh, built at Bletchley Park. Right. Some people have made the mistake that thinking that Turing was involved with the Colossus project, and he really was not, even though they kind of uh, were partially inspired by Turing's uh, paper and the Turing machine and all, but it was really, he did not have much involvement in the Colossus project. He was in the community, but yeah, Tommy yeah. Flowers and Max Newman right. and those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they, uh, Tommy Flowers and particularly um, designed the Colossus. Max Newman had some input to it, but not so much Turing's involvement with that. He did, there was a couple of um, uh, projects after the, after the war that I discuss in, uh, I can't list them off the top of my head. Um, but they, I discuss them in this book. This book is actually this this book. What I what I do in this book just to it's kind of an odd book, so I feel a need to to explain what I do, what what the <laughs> book is all about. Yeah. I take Turing's 1936 paper on computable numbers with an application to the Schrodinger's problem, and the the my book contains Turing's whole paper. It's only 36 pages and a three page correction, but it contains Turing's whole paper, but chopped up into little pieces and discussed by me. (laughs) And uh, what I do is provide a couple of chapters of background so you're ready to read the paper. And then uh, I frequently interrupt Turing's paper to to discuss what he's talking about. Um, And I do this because this is... I I first tried to read this paper when I was researching code back 10 years ago. Mm. Great book, uh, by the way. I still love that book. Thank you. And uh, I, I tried reading this paper, and it, this paper is very difficult, and it yes. contains a lot of weird symbols, weird tables. It's um, it's 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 scary looking, and uh, I had a, a great deal of problem making my way through this paper. And I thought somebody should write a book just explaining this paper. This paper is so important; it deserves its own book. And that's hmm. once I started thinking about that, I was a goner, and it just kind of stuck. Wow. Um, so, so that's what I mean. It presented it. It was a scary thing to think about giving me this 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 job because I uh, it meant that in order to write this book, I would have to understand every single sentence in this paper, yeah. <laughs> every single symbol in this paper. I would need to understand in order to write this book. So maybe that's why it took me <laughs> almost a decade to finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, Charles, what's great about the book is you don't have to be a mathematician to read and understand uh, oh, what great. you're writing about. Uh, that's what's really impressed me. I'm, I haven't read the whole thing yet. I'm a, about halfway through. Uh, but you've done a marvelous job of uh, sort of making it accessible to the layperson. I felt the same way reading code as well. Thank you. Yeah. It's just a good read. Yeah. But also in the, in this particular book it, besides just discussing Turing's paper, it I tried to interweave uh biographical information. 
yeah, and and historical information throughout the the, the narrative. And you had an interesting start. Uh, would you talk a little bit about how you started the book, the first uh, chapter? With I, I go back to the Diophantus, who was the uh, Alexandrian algebraist. He wrote a book on algebra problems. Um, in, in and and because his son died, uh, he devoted his life to mathematics. Right? Yeah, yeah. He was consoling his grief from the death of his son. Wow. And uh, these the Diophantus's problems were one of them was. The basis of uh, the, the the Fermat's great theorem: the uh, x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n only has integer solutions for n equals two, right. uh, which and that that was from somewhat it was somewhat from uh, from Diophantus's book, but the in 1900, um, David Hilbert gave this famous speech to. Uh, an international convention of mathematicians where he challenged them to solve 23 problems in the upcoming century. And one of them was about Diophantine problems. Um, and it's, it's, it's a decision problem. Is there a method to determine whether a particular Diophantine problem has a solution for integers? Um, and that was eventually proved to be false. No, there is no algorithm that was in the, from, in the 1970s. So it, it really took a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Many mathematicians became obsessed with this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last chapter, the, the book begins with Diophantus and it ends with uh, a discussion of how this ten, Hilbert's 10th problem, as it was called, was eventually right. solved by... Uh, 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 several mathematicians, in, including um, um, Martin Davis and uh, Julia, uh, Robinson. Julia Robinson, yes, and a uh, a Russian mathematician whose name I will not pr- attempt to pronounce. Okay. Marta Yesovich. Yes <laughs> okay, okay. All right, that, that was my, my best. Let's just call him Yuri. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and what's, what's interesting is, is that when, uh, when Yuri, uh, he, the, Yuri's proof that there is no general decision procedure for a Diophantine problem is built upon some work that Julia Robinson had done, which built some of some work for by Hillary Putnam and Martin Davis and all. But when he, when Yuri wrote a book called Hilbert's Tenth Problem, he completely rethought the proof, and he based his proof on Turing machines. So right. he's he builds this Turing machine that he shows cannot uh, the Turing machine cannot solve Diophantine problems. So I thought a Turing machine had not yet been built. Uh, that's be- that you can build them in your mind. It's hypothetical. A hypothetical Turing machine. Okay. You don't have to get your you don't have to get your hands dirty. You know, building actual boring hardware. It does come down <laughs> to Star Trek, doesn't it? I, I, I think pure lisp is based on uh, Turing uh, machine principles, on, right? It's, it's based more on uh, the lambda calculus. Well, and, and, you know, I'm glad you brought up Lambda Calculus again because this was this is Church's uh, 
contribution to the .NET framework, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lambda. Lambda expressions oh. are, are a great part of Link and the power of Link. Yeah, although if you look at Alonzo Church's original Lambda calculus, um, it would be pretty much unrecognizable. Um, but the idea of of stacking functions in, yeah. a, in a chain is is very much uh, lambda calculus. Yeah. Because then once you start stacking them like that, if there's a way that you can uh, resolve these all by just pure simple manipulation, uh, then it, it becomes a, a very useful tool, mathematical. We tool. had to bring this around to .NET. Sooner or later. <laughs> Otherwise, we couldn't get the tax write-off. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm still plugging away at that net, yes. It's, yeah. What do um, you think of Link? Link is cool. It is I haven't pretty met, cool. I haven't had, I haven't had much, much occasion to work with it yet. Yeah. You've um, seen the demos, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, trials. Do you do a lot of programming these days? Yeah, I I uh, I I wrote I've written two WPF books. Um, one is called um, Applications Equals Code Plus Markup, and the other one is 3D Programming for for Windows. Um, those are both uh, WPF, and um, I have recently um, been doing some WPF consulting. So I've been sitting in a cubicle writing WPF code. <laughs> so, so are you uh, a Notepad XAML guy? <laughs> I did. I, you know, yes, I like handwriting XAML. Yeah. Um, I, I for the uh, WPF book, I wrote a a, a, a program called XAML Cruncher. Basically, <laughs> uh, first I wrote a Notepad clone, and then I built XAML Cruncher on top of the Notepad clone. And, uh, yeah, this is, you know, uh, when XAML was first presented to the public by Microsoft, it was presented not as something you would handwrite, but as a as something that the tools could process. Right. And they said, okay, here's how it's going to work. You're going to have your designers working with a design program, and they'll they'll create the whole UI, including uh, styles and animation and stuff like that. And this, these design programs will spit out XAML files. And then the programmers, the developers, would be writing the code behind for these XAML uh, files, so that the XAML files could actually be shared between the designers and the developers. Um, and people wouldn't actually write any XAML. Uh, I think from my limited experience out in the real world of WPF programming, this has not happened. Um, the designers are still using their own tools for designing the, the, the look and feel of the apps. And the developers are actually handwriting their XAML. And the reason why is that the XAML just has the, the you know, it's it's... It's, it's one thing to, to lay out all your controls and stuff like that in XAML, but really the, 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 the crux of it is all the data bindings and stuff yeah. like that. You really have to do those by hand. They're too, they're much too intricate to be done by a designing program. Yeah, expression doesn't help you there. Right. right. 
Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Uh, let me ask you a little bit about writing these books. I mean, you 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 obviously are one of the um, the authors from the golden age of technical book writing. You mean when when people actually bought and read books? Yeah, and that's the golden age. Yeah, <laughs> and obviously, yeah. you know, it's all about new media these days, and yeah. uh, a lot has happened. A lot has happened even in the last 10 years to publishing and not just books, but magazines too. It seems yeah. like, uh, the, it seems like publishers are having a hard time finding authors and, uh, a lot of it is because there's not a lot, as many people are, there's more books on the market and not as many people are buying books. Yeah. I think, I think computer books and programming books have been particularly hard hit by these developments and it's not, it's, it's partially due to the the enormous proliferation of different APIs and programming languages and stuff like that. You just you can't afford to uh, sit down for three months and methodically learn a particular API. It's just not the way it's done anymore. Um, people need to learn things very quickly, so they they run Visual Studio, they pick a project, and they start fooling around with it and. And if they run into a problem, they Google something, Google a few keywords, and and get back uh, somebody's blog entry where they discuss how it's done. And that's that's the way people seem to be learning these days. Also, don't you think that the technology changes are happening it, more rapidly? Now? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, just, books shelf yeah. life is so limited. Yeah. Whereas your your book on programming Windows was pretty much timeless. I mean, you you were talking about stuff that was down in the goo of Windows that we needed to know for years. Yeah, there were several years that passed between Windows two and Windows three, and yeah. then Windows ninety five. Right, and uh, so that and when there was a time, and, and uh, as time was different for um, different people, but people who had been uh, programming in DOS for for several years um, realized, you know, I have to move to Windows, mm. and the way that they would they would buy a book often my book, and read it from beginning to end yeah. and try out the examples sure. and very methodically learn how to do this. I would say that that kind of, of book reading is, is almost disappeared. What about magazines? Magazines have been really crushed by yeah, internet yeah. and things like .NET Rocks, you know. Yeah, well, internet and <laughs> internet. The, uh, the 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 internet is much more conducive to magazine publishing, right? Because magazine articles are are already bite size. Right. Things things on the uh, things on the web are are are, are tiny. You know, five hundred words maybe to a couple thousand words is the optimum length for something on the web, and it's really. And it's partially that you you can't accommodate uh, longer pieces of work. You could, if, if you're going to have an actual book on the web, you would do it uh, in a PDF file, mm -hmm. which isn't really web-like. No. You know, it's something you open up on the, the client and you read on the screen with pages. 
But if you try to do something long in HTML, <laughs> you can't do it in one HTML file. No. It's, it's just you way to too long. You can't split and... up, and then you have, have all these you know, page numbers, these forbidding page numbers at right. the bottom. It's hard to scan through it and stuff like that. So yeah. a lot of the information has been, has been chopped down to, to really small chunks that really don't follow one from another. Um, sometimes people with new technologies say, say, oh, this is, this, several people have blogged about this, and here's a list of the blog entries, and you can kind of, if you go through these blog entries in sequence, it's almost like a tutorial. Well, it never is. It never is. A real tutorial is written by uh, a single person who takes you through the material in a particular path. Right. And, and a, a path where you, you learn one thing at a time and you build upon what you've learned before. You've obviously uh, done a lot of research on the web. Um, what has oh, been yeah. your experience in searching for information, uh, you know, in, in, in this kind of thing? Have, has the blog experience been good, or, or has you, have you really learned from particular sites that, as you say, are written by one person? Well, with, with programming problems, I mean, I, do, I, I research programming problems the same way everybody else does. If I have problems with a particular class in .NET, I'll just enter it into to, to, uh, Google and skip the first few entries because those are the MSD and re- references, you know, and see somebody who's actually blogged about this. And, yeah, it's, it's very useful in that respect. Um, I don't think... It's, it's going to be interesting to see how, what kind of grasp people have on complex technologies like WPF, where there's a lot of stuff in it, and you really need to know a lot of this stuff to, to fit it all together. Whether there's going to be a lot of programmers who, who can code WPF, but who are missing big pieces of the total picture. I don't know that. I don't know if that's going to be the case. Well, yeah, that, that's the sort of question that popped up in my mind, is what does it say about programmers learning uh, today? Uh, you know, when Carl and I came up, we had to have a, a firm foundation on the way computers worked, operating systems, programming languages. And uh, sort of what you're saying now is uh, programmers today are just searching to find a quick fix to the problem at hand. It seems that way, yeah. And it's, and really, why should somebody bother to learn a, a particular framework it's in a depth? Fair question. Because it's going to be, it's going to be replaced in a couple of years. It's a fair question. And, you know, we, we get nostalgic, you know, and, and the, you know, the older folk among us get nostalgic and say, oh, but your experience won't be as rich if you don't understand X. And that's yeah. just not true. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to be the same as your experience because you went through that, but do you know, somebody does somebody need to learn assembler programming today in order to understand how to write good C sharp code? I I would I would say it's not really necessary. No, of course not. Uh, right. I would say I would say having a good assembly language background was necessary for C programming and C plus right. programming. Right, right. Um I, but yeah, C sharp you're really getting to a point where you don't need that stuff. Although mm, it's it's sad to if to think that there's programmers who well it's who hard to admit isn't it Charlie basics. 
Yeah. Isn't it hard to admit? Because, you know, you're basically <laughs> saying all that hard work that I did no, no, is no longer required. I was wasting my time. <laughs> Which is not true, of course, but that's how you feel. Oh, I, uh, I can't think of anything I've learned in my life that I consider a waste of time. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> it, it, all, it all fits together somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it was absolutely necessary back back in the day. So, you yeah. know, we, we just think that we can, you know, shift time, I think. Yeah. We wish we could, anyway, go back in time. But I, I, I bring this up because, obviously, a lot of people listen to this show, and we get a lot of email from people who who say they do not have the time when they're sitting down at their computer at work to go and learn new things and yeah. to you know to to do the kind of uh, to get the kind of education that you can get from listening to a podcast like this and I'm wondering yeah. if if now there's even you know an even bigger problem is just reading text in general is the process of doing that requires a little bit of discipline. It requires mm -hmm. a filter to be able to filter out stuff quickly that you that you should not need to take the time to read. When you go in, upon a blog, you know, or, or some sort of writing or a paper or a white paper or whatever it is on the web about something you're interested in, how do you know if it's even relevant anymore? Yeah, yeah. And I think... I think uh, there's a, a little of this has to do with the fact that we no longer trust writing like we used to trust it back before the Internet. And when something was in print in a magazine or in a book, there was a good chance that it was accurate information because the publisher uh, publishers thrive. And, well, publishers can be taken down for printing um, falsehoods. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, as an author, you had more skin in the game when you were uh, published in a book. Yeah, there's a whole process before the, before the actual book appears of, of people looking at of it. Of course, because, you know. But but the, the 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 so what happens is I think that we have years, and I mean ever since Gutenberg, we've been conditioned to think that if it's in print, it's accurate. And of course, with the internet, it's total crap. And and this came. <laughs> This this became very apparent to me when I was reading The Onion one day. Do you know The Onion? <laughs> oh, yeah. TheOnion.com. We, we have a print edition of The Onion in New York City. That's it's right. There required is a, reading. And up in uh, Wisconsin, I think, is where it's it's up in yeah. there. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so The Onion, of course, is a satire newspaper. And the thing that struck me when I was reading this uh, you know, of course, it's hilarious. But I'm I was thinking why it's funny. Because the writing is so good. And the presentation is so professional that you, you're, there's something in the back of your brain that's been conditioned to believe <laughs> the thi that things in print are true. And you want so much to believe it. Yeah. But, of course, it's total BS. Yeah. And it smacks you in the face over and over again saying, hey, but, wake up, wake up, wake up. But there are, uh, there are apparently high school students who routinely include – Articles from the Onion in, in reports and stuff. You're, you know, they just turn up and <laughs> they don't know that it's satire. Yeah. Uh, yeah one, of, one, one of my favorite ones was, and we could go on about the headlines that we like, but <laughs> one of them was uh, Bill Clinton forgets to hit save on federal budget, costs taxpayers billions of dollars. 
And I passed this. I was doing a class uh, uh, about the internet, and I passed this this out to my students to see what their reaction would be. I printed it out and passed it out, and they glanced at it and then went, oh, "Really." <laughs> Because it looks, it's in print. Yeah. The, the font is nice. There's a picture of Bill Clinton there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's so, like it's so, so what I'm saying is, and to get back to my original point, that I think there's a growing mistrust of of things that are in print, uh, and and on the internet. And so, how when you come across, uh, you know, white paper or something, a do you know that it's still relevant? Yeah. B do you know that it's accurate? Yeah. I wrote I wrote a little uh, a uh, April Fool's parody of of C sharp being converted into XML syntax <laughs> and and um, I I still occasionally get an email from somebody saying oh I think this is a terrible idea <laughs> and like look look at the date on it please yeah. um, another thing about reading though is is that at least for me the best reading I do is where I don't have other distractions. You know, sure. if, if you if you are away from the computer, right, and you're just like on the couch, you just have a book or a magazine, and you can't reach anything else, and right. so you you're focused on reading online. Is there are so many other distractions? So every many. hyperlink, every hyperlink is an invitation to stop reading the That's thing. That's right. You know, no, you're it's, absolutely it's, right. Yeah, if there's something I really want to read, I put it in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I got a bookcase in my bathroom. Cool. <laughs> don't the books get a little, um, a little, don't they pick up steam and stuff and get a little puffy in the bathroom? Yeah. No? Okay. Yeah. It's okay. I have paperbacks. You know? All right. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't keep the good books in the bathroom. <laughs> So, so Charles, you, you've written some really interesting books. Uh, do you do you have uh, anything else you're working on in the future? I have I have a few kind of book ideas. Um, I, it's just it's just hard. I've I have been hit so badly by the uh, declining book sales problem um, that I've been, uh, as I mentioned, doing some consulting, um, and I'd rather be writing books, but. Uh, and, uh, so I'm trying to, I don't know what I'm doing at this point. Um, it was, uh, I've, I've, I've really had some, uh, uh, what are considered uh, commercial bombs <laughs> in the past few years, uh, books that to me seem fine, uh, but, uh, don't sell very well. Um, the 3d book in particular, um, I mean, that book was about eight months of full-time work. And uh, it has, over the past year, sold fewer than 4,000 copies, which is wow. uh, disastrous. That's not and this good. Is, this is, I don't know, to me it was a sexy topic, you know, sure. 3D programming for Windows that you can do in XAML without writing any code. You can do 3D animations. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and a lot of people, see, there was a time where a book would come out and you'd say, ooh, I, I'm not sure I need that book right away, but maybe in a year or so I might need it. Hence, I'll buy it now because in a year or so it might be out of print. 
You know, I need to get a copy now. Yeah. So the shelf life is so. And I don't think people do that anymore. And they kind of feel like, well, if I really need this book sometime in the future, if I really need to learn 3D some kind of future, uh, maybe it'll be online somewhere. Maybe I can just download it. Um, so I don't know. Whatever the reasons, um, you can't, you can't spend eight months of full-time work for a book that sells 4, 000, less than few, four, no. fewer than 4,000 copies. You just can't. Do the math. You will be, yes. Right. Well, you know, for a, te- for a technical book, what would be a good number? I mean, you mentioned 4,000. Would, uh, you know, 30,000 oh, copies minimum, be a good Minimum of 10. I can tell you the math. I mean, you can, people can do the math at home and decide for themselves how many copies a book should sell in order to make it worthwhile. Um, I, it takes me about a month of full-time work to write 100 pages of a book. And uh, uh, probably a month at the beginning just to get oriented, maybe a couple months at the end and stuff. So... I think the 3D book is about 500 pages, and it took about eight months. Um, there's a cover price on the book. I think for the 3D book, it's $40. The publisher gets back half of that, $20. $20, half of the cover price is consumed in the re- retail chain. Mm-hmm. The publisher gets back half the cover price, and the royalty is 15% of that. Yep. So for the, the, a book like 3D Programming for Windows, the royalty is about $3 a copy. However, if it's actually sold outside the U.S., the English language copy sold outside the U.S., the royalty is only 10%. Right. So it's like $2. Um, and about a third of those fewer than 4,000 copies were sold outside the U.S. So people can at home can do the math and figure out what the royalty income was for this book for eight months of work. <laughs> and it's just... It's just you want to, so you're basically know. making about uh, nine hundred to a thousand dollars a month for your work uh, so far. Minim- yeah, minimum wage? I, yeah, <laughs> it's it's not quite minimum wage, but and um, I don't know, some kind of of uh, something. If 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 long tutorials, long and by uh, if let's say book length, if book length programming tutorials are to be written in the future. There has, they're, they're, they're not going to be, I don't think they're going to be published books. They're going to, it's going to be something online. Um, but if you put something online, then it has to be free. You know, nothing enrages people and programmers so much as, as finding a, 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 a hit in Google and going to a site and they need to cough up some money in order to see the, the answer to the problem. What about these readers? You know, like the handheld readers that have the digital link or or even the readers, the online readers. Mm. They, they never really took off. No. Um, and I think it's partially a different issue for... I think eventually people will be reading novels on Kindles and uh, associated devices. For programming tutorials, you really need, you really need something that shows up in Google. And it has to be chopped up into little pieces. So if you're looking for a particular topic, you go right to a, 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 a thousand-word page that, that will tell you the answer. But then 
if you say, well, there's something else here I don't understand, the opportunity to move backwards in the tutorial, of having this be one piece of a big tutorial that actually goes in a straight line or maybe multiple tree-like branches uh, from beginning to end, where you could actually sit down at the machine and learn a topic methodically from beginning to end in a tutorial, but which is also ha- is divided up into small enough chunks that it becomes searchable and useful in that way. Right. Something like well, that. <laughs> well, what, what do you think about self-publishing? I, I'm, I'm thinking back to, to me learning regular expressions. And I did that by buying uh, Dan Appleman's ebook, e-book yeah. uh, which he self-published um, on regular expressions. And I know Rocky Laka has self-published uh, CSLA books, for, in- mm. for instance. I've never, I've never gone to a self-publishing route. Um, I, I partially because I'm not a business person. I'm, I'm a writer and a coder, and uh, I, I like working with a publisher who handles all the, the messy business end of it, you know, the actual distribution and, and collection of money. <laughs> um, and uh, I know there were some early successes with self-publishing in this industry. I, I don't know how that works anymore. I mean, people think of self-publishing now. They think of publishing online. Um, I wrote a little book. Uh, I took some pieces that, of, of books that I had written and and wrote some new stuff. I wrote a little uh, book called .NET Book Zero and put it in a PDF file and put it on my website. And you can freely download it. It's, it's I don't think it's longer than 200 pages, but it, it basically tells you what you need for what a C and C++ programmer needs to get started in .NET. Hmm. This has been very popular. Hmm. Um, people, it's it's. People like downloading it and reading it. Um, and it's popular partially because it's free. You know, I think that's a big part of the popularity. Yeah. It's free, right? right? It's free. Um, and so how we reconcile this, this desire that we want for the, all this freely available information, which with actually paying the people who produce it, <laughs> is a big problem. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't have the solution to it. I wish, I wish some publishers had the solution to it. You know, this is, I, I'm only a writer. I, I, I don't know how to make this thing work. Yeah. Well, Charles, we're coming down to the end of the show. Is there uh, okay. any last-minute shout-outs that you want to yes. promote? Or? Yes. Um, well, I have a website, which is charlespetzel.com. Mm-hmm. The Annotated Touring has a website, which is theannotatedtouring.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of November, the end of, no, the end of October, I will be at the uh, Microsoft Professional Developers Conference uh-huh. in L.A. And what I will be doing is the day before the conference actually begins, it begins on a Monday, but on that Sunday, there's a bunch of people doing pre-cons, they're called. And these are six-hour tutorials, and I will be doing six hours on WPF programming. Wow. Cool. So if you, if you want a good... Introduction to WPF programming um, from somebody who's been doing it uh, for a long time <laughs> and who has wrote two books on it and has total, totally rethought how to present WPF. Um, I'm going to do it quite a bit different from the way I did it in my book. Uh, this is uh, 
this is an ideal opportunity if you can sit in a room with me for six hours. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, Charles. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating book and a, about a fascinating man. And uh, we always appreciate your writing talents. Thank you. Right, and you don't have to be a math geek to uh, to enjoy Charles's Definitely. book. I mean, it, it's uh, consumable by anybody that's interested in uh, you know Turing and machines and and logic. It's great. Thanks again, Charles. Okay, take care. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a